0: We now turn to our side uh, text of this afternoon, Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. Acts 4, from verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and, the, and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage? and the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determine before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Word of the Lord. Now let us turn to our text of this afternoon, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He will sit in the heavens. Shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath, and and distress, and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me: You are my son; today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we live life to the fullest? Or how to have life in abundance? For us covenant people, the answer is clear. It is trust in Christ. We confess that our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Embracing that comfort is how to live life to the fullest, isn't it? At the personal level, embracing that comfort expresses itself as a delight in God's instructions, as we saw this morning. Such a delight, in turn, empowers us to say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But how does embracing that unique comfort manifest itself in our interactions with the public authorities? To be more precise, how do we live in that unique unique comfort when the authorities, the kings of the earth, attack the earth, the the church, please, in an attempt to rebel against God? How do you live in that comfort when they rob your face in all kinds of sexual perversions? When they rob your face in the cult of death? in the abortion of hundreds of thousands of babies with your tax money, when they rub your face in the killing of the elderly people through euthanasia. Do you kiss the the ring and surrender? No, God forbid. We must never, yes, we must never do such things. But what do we do then? And again, the answer is simple, although very difficult to perform. The answer is that we stand firm in the faith, maintaining our allegiance to Christ and refusing to be intimidated. Why? Because we know who is in charge, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To increase our courage, the Lord has given us Psalm 2. Therefore, it is my privilege this afternoon to preach the good news of Christ's victory using Psalm 2. The theme of this gospel proclamation is when kings Rabu stand firm in the faith. When kings... No, I'm sorry for my pronunciation. Rebel, yeah, that's the thing. When kings rebel, stand firm in the faith. Under this theme, we will see three points. First, the king's rebellion, followed by the Lord's response, and finally, the Messiah's warning. The king's rebellion, the Lord's response, and the Messiah's warning. Our first one, the King's Rebellion. Our text starts with a question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Why does the psalmist ask this question? Which kind of question is this? The question is a rhetorical question. The psalmist expresses his amazement at what the nations are doing. Why is the psalmist amazed? He is amazed because the, action, the actions of the nations are delusional, futile, useless. It is the kind of amazement you would have if you saw a man seriously engage in emptying the ocean with a spoon. The amazement of the psalmists should not blind us, though, to the great seriousness of the nations. The psalmist says that they are raging. The word rage here carries the imagery of an angry horse prancing and snorting in fury. What are the nations doing practically in their rage? In practice, the kings of the earth are conspiring against God. They convene, they set up alliances, and gather all their military might to fight against God and His anointed. Notice that the rebellion is a universal rebellion, all the nations. The nations here refer to all who are not part of God's people. Notice also that the word plot means to meditate. It is the same word that is used for the righteous man's meditation in Psalm 1. So while the godly man is meditating, pondering on God's instructions, the kings of the earth are meditating, thinking, pondering on rebelling. So the kings who are supposed to rule on God's behalf are rebelling against him. What is the purpose of their rebellion? The kings want to be free to rule by themselves without answering to God. They see God as a hindrance, as a shackle. His laws are as um, chains restricting them. The kings of the earth's mindset is the one that our first parents, Adam and Eve, embraced in the Garden of Eden when they disobeyed God. God had established them as rulers over his entire creation. But they listened to the devil, believing God was restraining them. In their arrogance, they jumped over God's safety barrier and the fall was Disastrous. Christ, our King, also faced a similar rebellion at his first coming. The kings of the earth, in the persons of the Jewish leaders, Pilate and Herod, rebelled against Christ. Think with me for a moment, please. The people of Israel are called in Scripture the vineyard of the Lord, with Jesus as their ultimate king, with Jesus as their the reason, reason, raison d'etre, the reason of their existence. But when Jesus came, those in authority on his behalf did not acknowledge him as their king, and they crucified him. Those rebellious leaders thought that by getting rid of Jesus, they would have the kingdom and all the people for themselves. But where are they today? They have all perished, but Jesus' kingdom remains. The faith of those people who rebelled, the leaders of the Jews and Pilate and Herod, is the faith of all the kings who oppose God. God puts them in a coffin stated otherwise he puts them six feet under. Dear congregation of the Lord, do not be therefore overwhelmed. Do not let fear overwhelm you when governments put laws against the church and use violence against her in their attempt to rebel against God. There we fail. Remember that they will fail. With this, we reach the end of our first point. We have just seen that the psalmist is amazed at the delusional, horse-like rage of the kings of the earth. The psalmist is amazed because he knows that their plots are vain. But how does God, the master of the kings of the earth, react to such a worldwide rebellion? Our second point, will answer this question. Our second point, the Lord's response, is Messiah. What does our text say about God's response? One who does not have a high view of God might think, oh man, a worldwide rebellion. I can imagine that he who sits in heaven is stressing about it. No. Wrong. God laughs. This laughter is not a joyful one. It's a laughter of mockery and scorn. The, line, the second line of verse 4 makes it clear by telling us that God laughs at them in division. The one who sits in heaven, meaning the one who is ruling heaven, does not take the king of the earth with all the seriousness with which they take themselves. You can picture the scene by imagining a less than a pound mouse determined to, act, to attack a 700-pound male grizzly. Fat chance for the mouse, isn't it? But the greatness, the difference of greatness between God and the kings of the earth is infinitely greater than the difference between bears and mice. Because of His great majesty that the rebels have insulted, the Lord is deeply angry. Catechism student Do you remember what the catechism confesses about the necessity of such anger in Lord's Day 4? What does Lord's Day 4 say? Lord's Day 4 says, God's justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The rebels, the rebels, please, are less than chaff before God. All their tanks, missiles, aircraft carriers, nuclear bombs, fighter jets, and everything else account for nothing before God. He can destroy them in a moment. Here, the psalmist says that the Lord terrifies the rebels by the blasting of his heated anger. Such anger can manifest itself in several ways. For example, the sudden fatal heart attack that he gave to Herod, or the mental and political pressures that led Pilate to commit suicide, or even the military destruction of the Jewish establishment by the Roman army. In this psalm, though, the Lord terrifies the rebels by confirming his support for the messiah that he has appointed. Now, what is a messiah? A messiah or Christ, please, messiah and Christ have the same meaning. A messiah or Christ is someone God has appointed to rule God's people or to accomplish a specific purpose for the glory of God. In this psalm, God empowers the Messiah to rule over the earth and destroy the rebels. And that's what we read in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God does not negotiate with the rebels. And that's what we read. Um, God does not negotiate with the the rebels. He bluntly says... I myself have installed my king on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. My Messiah will bring you the furious terror that your rebellion deserves. Those rebellious kings fail to understand two things. The first thing is that God is infinitely greater than all of them put together. And the second thing is that God is immutable. His standards do not change. Therefore, it is useless for them to kick or scream against His standards. Thus, people of God, let us remember that God will never change His standards to accommodate anyone, even if that person is the leader of all the nations of the earth. We should also remember to refuse to be intimidated when the earthly authorities rage against the church. Why should we remain calm and obedient to God? Because Jesus, the head of the church, has the name above all names. He is infinitely mightier, greater than all the rebels put together. And because He is God, His plans for the salvation of the church Stand firm forever. As he said, the gates of of hell will never prevail against the church. So far, we saw that God laughs at the universal rebellion because all their strength and rage account for nothing to him. God answered the rebels by appointing a messiah on Mount Zion. And the Messiah will execute God's terror on the rebels. But who is that Messiah? What does the Holy Spirit teach us about him? Let us proceed and see. In verse 7 we read, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the psalmist in verse 7 says that he will proclaim and publicly announce he will preach the decree that the Lord has said to him. And what is the content of that decree? That decree is a public statement of adoption. Who gives the decree? The Lord is the one giving the decree. And who receives the decree. The psalmist is the one receiving the decree. The me that we read stands for the psalmist. Thus, we understand that God gives a public statement of adoption to the psalmist. In verse 8 and 9, the decree continues. There, God says that the psalmist can just ask and he will receive the entire earth as his inheritance. Thus, we understand that the psalmist is a king, the king whom God has installed in Zion, the anointed against whom the kings of the earth are rebelling. Now, who is that person in the Old Testament who was king in Zion and who received a public statement of adoption from God? David is the first one of them. So David is the one speaking from verse 1. And Acts 4 that we read, that's our side text, also confirms that. Did David fight against ungodly kings? Yes, he did. Did David rule over an empire? Yes, he did. But David's empire was quite small compared to other empires that we know. And David's empire was very far from being universal. Then how can the text be, how can the psalmist then be David? And the answer is this, sure enough, the Hebrews hoped for a universal empire through the Davidic line. But the hope of faithful Israelite went beyond David beyond the Davidic line, to the ultimate anointed, the ultimate Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this psalm, though referring primarily, first of all, to David and his line, ultimately points to Jesus, the eternal, natural Son of God. Although Jesus has always been God's son, he was declared the son of God before men at his baptism. God the Father confirmed the declaration in power according to the spirit of holiness by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Dear congregation, this Jesus is your Lord. He is majestic in, holy- in holiness awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, powerful beyond measure, and his reign is universal. All power in heaven and on earth belong to him, and now he is ascended in heaven, having received the name above every name. And from there, he is currently ruling the entire universe for the blessing for the benefit of his church. What a blessing, what a privilege we have to belong to such a glorious king. But Jesus does not tolerate rival powers and will carry out the sentence that David and his sons could not carry because of their weakness and sinfulness. Although today people can still afford to ignore his kingship, no one will be able to do so at his second coming. He will dash his enemies and ours in pieces. When Jesus comes, the rebel's strength will be to him mere fragility like extra-fragile China. He will break them with a rod of iron and crush them like a porter's vessel meaning he will have absolute power over the the rebels. And the knees that did not want to bow down to him in love, Jesus will break and make to bow in terror. In summary, verses 6 to 9 show us that David is the anointed king that the psalm is referring to. But David himself, is a type of Christ. Christ is already ruling, but his rule will be fully visible at his second coming. Thus, the universal, undisputed rule manifests itself fully with Jesus' kingship. But our text continues. Verse 10 starts with a now which signifies the beginning of a response. Response to what? Response to God's decree that David has published. This call to a response is, in fact, a warning. And let us see the Messiah's warning in our third point. Sorry, I would like to read in this version. In verse 10, we read, Now therefore, be wise, O king, be instructed, you judges of the earth. David says, In light of the decree, of the Lord's decree, I exhort you to understand the precariousness in which you are, and in humility to make sensible decisions. What does God expect when he exhorts them through David to make sensible decisions? God expects the kings of the earth to serve him in reverence. The world and its people belong to God. He is the one who has appointed those people in authority. Therefore, they may not just do the selfish things. They should rule as God expects them to rule. That is, with justice and love for the people. In other words, they must abide by the boundaries, the restrictions, and the instructions that God has given them. But that's not all. They must also kiss the sun. What does this mean? It means having a personal allegiance to the Messiah, because one accepts the authority structure God has put in place. Translated to our period of redemptive history, it means to embrace the Lordship of Christ. Embracing the Lordship of Christ involves a public commitment to to govern in a Christ-honoring manner, and a personal commitment to submit to Christ in private. But still, why the kiss? Because kissing was an act of homage to those in authority. Kissing was also an act of worship. For example, in 1 Samuel 10, 1, Samuel kissed Saul to pay him respect as the new king of Israel. In 1 Kings 19, 18, God says to Elijah that he has 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal and have not kissed him. Why should they then embrace from the heart God's messianic rule? The kings of the earth must do so first because it is good for them to do so. God's law is sound and whole as we sing in Psalm 19. It revives the soul. Second, as our text says, lest he, meaning Jesus, be angry and you, meaning the kings of the earth, perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. In other words, if the kings of the earth do not embrace God wholeheartedly, he will destroy them in his anger. He will consume them like fire, and they will perish in their rebellion. Further, they do not have much time to repent. They must repent before it is too late, before his judgment falls on them. It is like the call of John the Baptist and Jesus in the Gospels. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. To whom does the call apply again? The call to repentance? To the kings of the earth. Yes, they must rule in a Christ-honoring manner. But the call to repentance also applies to us. We must all embrace the lordship of Christ. What does that mean? It means living a life of faith-driven obedience to Christ. What does living a life of faith-driven obedience entail? Considering our text, it entails a firm stand in the faith before the intimidation of the kings of the earth. Dear people of God, Christ Jesus is our Lord, not the kings of the earth. And so we owe obedience first to him. Our text ends with the sentence, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The blessedness spoken of here is the one that we read this morning in Psalm 1, which is fruitfulness in our spiritual work, with, our walk with God, impact for God in this life, and an eternal inheritance at Christ's return. So just like Psalm 1, Psalm 2 presents us Two ways, the way of life and the way of death. What does the way of life entail? It entails trust in God and delight in His Word. What comes out of such a delight? Power. Yes, the power to shun worldliness, to refuse submission to the kings of the earth rebellion. How? By standing firm in the faith. Dear congregation of the Lord, the way of life is narrow and difficult. The way of death is broad and easy. It is the one on which you find the wicked, the mockers, the rebellious kings who want to cast away God's instructions. Our Lord urges us to follow Him on the way of life. Therefore, let us pray to Him to give us the grace that we need to follow Him, especially when we face the pressures and intimidations of the kings of the earth. Amen.